Well, good morning. I find myself in worship today uh, with a lot on my mind, and, uh, and I don't know what's on yours. And so, before I read the text, uh, let's pray. Let's center ourselves on God and His Word. Lord, we, we come to you this morning with our Bibles open. This book of James, this amazing practical word that you have given us. Lord, we have sought to look at every verse here, look at everything you want us to teach us. And we come here again, Lord, to this fourth chapter and want us to see ourselves honestly, want to see the world rightly, and want to, more, more importantly, to see you the way we need to see you. And yet, Lord, there's a lot that's happened this week. And many of our lives have been really good things, really challenging things, things that we haven't even processed yet. And, and Lord, we can bring that into the text today. This pastor can can bring my tiredness or my frustration into your word, Lord, and we dare not do that today. And so, Lord, we entrust to you now these things so that we may hear from you today in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've got your Bible, if you're watching online, welcome. We're working through the book of James. We find ourselves in the fourth chapter, going to try to look at 12 verses today, sort of ambitious, but I think we can do it. Uh, Micah, by the way, is leading at Walnut Grove this morning. Their worship leader was out, and he's filling in for them, and uh, we prayed for them this morning as uh, Pastor Chris preaches the same text I am and just right now. So we've got a very important members meeting right after worship. Please stay for that. Stand with me to your feet. James 4. James hasn't changed subjects, and we'll talk about that, but he is asking questions this morning. James chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously? Over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it said God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, 
You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Therefore, there is only one lawgiver and judge, and he is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You could be seated. So we've been talking the last few weeks about what it looks like, the nitty-gritty of biblical community. What we must be aware of to have a healthy community and what may well be happening in our life or in our church's life if our community is unhealthy or if we ourselves are unhealthy. James began by talking, telling us to watch our mouth. It's coming back to that today. Control how you use this because it is powerful. It is so powerful that the chief concern of our life is to grow in godly wisdom. We saw that at the end of chapter 3. And the need for wisdom is central not only because our mouth, but because of our passions that are at war within us, what we're going to talk about today. And these passions come right back around out this thing, this mouth that we use, sometimes to pass judgment on people and not even know them. <laughs> this is a problem for everybody. And that's what we're going to talk about at the end, our need to repent and to repent regularly. So he starts the conversation in verse 1 by asking this question. What causes problems in the local church? He's not talking about what causes problems out there. He's saying what problem causes problems oftentimes in here. In your experience with the local church. If there's some of us gray heads in the room, we've seen some stuff. Not all of it good. What causes that? Where does it come from? There's a devil causing that. Pay attention today. He's going to teach us something. He's saying this. The health of the church, the health of your family, depends on this word, friendships. Your parents always told you, you know, my, I remember my dad saying it. If you hang around with pigs, you're going to find yourself in the mud. What was he trying to teach me? Friendships are matter. And here he's talking about a distinct kind of friendships. The word, when we get to it, he's, is the word phileo. We know that. It is love and affection. It is an intimate word. It, it draws an understanding that I am here for somebody for help or support. It's where I'm drawing my help and support from. And he's saying there's two kinds of friendships going on. One with the world and one with God. And you can't have both. This is a relationship issue. The world, remember, for, for James and for John, is not creation. And it's, the world is not individual people. It is a world system that is in rebellion against God, His Word, and God's people. It is what we would say a worldview. One commentator said this, Christianity cannot peacefully coexist with evil. And what we said last week, we're going to say again even stronger we must fight, and we must learn how to fight and who to fight. Main idea. Faith fights friendship with the world as it fights for exclusive friendship with God so that our desires might be God's desires and God's grace may be ours in abundance. We need to see first the faithful fights friendship with the world. And we will fight it our whole life. Well, what is the core of this fight? Look at verse 1 and first part of verse 2. Friendship with the world stems from our own selfish desires. 
He asked that question. What causes these quarrels and fights? He answers it. Listen, this is critical. It's not, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, what's going on exactly in the local church? We're not completely sure. We talked about factions last week. These two groups of people in rebellion against God's authority. And they end up, because of their selfish ambitions, fighting each other. He's just working this out more detailed this week. So it very well could be church leaders, teachers in the church that are fighting. It could be two groups of people. We've talked about this. If you've been in church long enough, you've had an experience where you had two groups of people. We use this as an illustration. A church of 20, 10, 10 or 12 believe one way, 10 or 12 think another way. Nothing ever happens. He's not speaking about offenses because that Mike offended me. He's not talking about that. He's saying there is this selfish ambition inside of us that began to what we called last week disorder. He's, he's further defining that a little bit more clearly. It's conflict. It's the fruit hanging from our tree. And James says that the source is the word that we get the word hedonism from. It's the word passions. We'll also use the word today, cravings. It is this that is inside of us. The word hedonism was, a, was by and large a negative word that was just called for self-indulgent pleasures. I want what I want. I want it out of the church. I want it out of people. I, our capitalist system has been corrupted through this we want and we should have and we will do anything to get it. That's what he's speaking of. When this is allowed to come unchecked within the local church or within your family, it will destroy it. Conflict will ensue. That's what he's saying. Is, is he saying, listen to me, is he saying the devil causes conflict in the church? Is the devil causing this conflict in your life? It's not what he's saying. He's saying your own cravings is causing it. You hear what? This is important. You don't understand the doctrine of man. You will blame the devil for what is your responsibility. He's saying this conflict that is coming comes from demonic thinking. But the devil is not the cause of the conflict. He is not the cause of the evil thinking. Notice, notice the nature of it. It's in verse 2. We want what we do not have. We covet what we cannot obtain. And here's the truth. We talked about this around the campfire, didn't we? This, where this goes to is ruthlessness in our culture, ruthlessness in the way we treat each other. We treat people sometimes as believers in ways that unbelievers don't even treat each other. He says, why is that happening? It's because the cravings in your own heart have left unchecked. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. Listen to what Paul says to a pastor, Timothy, verse 9, chapter 6, But to those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many, listen, senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into what? 
ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Coveting is to set your affection for something, not by which to serve it or to do it well. It is something, I covet that, I want that, I will have that. We do that not only with things, we do it with people. We do it in relationships. Many relationships is just dual sinful coveting, whereby one says, I want that, and I'm going to have this and that person. The other one says, well, you're going to get this, I'm going to get that. And here's what he's saying. That will destroy you. And listen, many of us can bear testimony. It has destroyed seasons of our life. What, where can these things lead? He said ruthlessness. Well, he tells us. And we've explained this away, and we should take it serious, what he says in verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you what? Murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so what? You fight. You quarrel. It's what he's saying. These cravings take us to a place that we never thought we'd go. And whether you murder somebody physically or whether you murder somebody emotionally, what does James mean by that anyway, murder? I think we have explained it away too quickly. It's better to just take it for what it says. If your passions aren't checked, it will lead you to a place that you never thought you would go. I looked this up. This is right off the FBI's website, by the way. <laughs> Not pulling this out of the air. In 2011, 36.5% of all women were murdered by their husbands or their boyfriends. You hear me? You hear that? You hear that number? You imagine how many people that is. Let me ask you something. Did that boyfriend or husband set out to say, "One day I'm going to murder you"? Their desires for themselves was left unchecked, and where it ended was a place that they never thought they'd go. James is right. His word is true because it's God's word, but our life bears testimony with it too. I, I actually had some, some typical names of churches here to use an illustration. I was like, I better not do that because somebody will think I'm talking about the church in town. But we all know a church that has split. I was part of a church that split over the bus ministry because we didn't want them kids coming to our church, right? Caused friction. People end up left, and what did they create? They created the next church down the street. So the people that got mad and left, did, did they set out to say, one day, I'm going to tear the church of Jesus Christ right smack down the middle. I'm going to tear this local church into pieces. That's why I joined it. And there might be some people that do that, but most don't. Where, why did that happen? Because of their own selfish desires. He said it, it even comes into our prayer life. Friendship with the world stems from selfish prayers. He says you don't have because you don't ask. And you, you ask and don't get. <laughs> you don't receive because you ask wrongly. You only want to spend it on those passions. 
Instead of going to God with what they need and they desire, they covet it from you or you covet it from them. So it can look like no prayer life at all. In other words, the objective way, whether your passions are left unchecked, is looking at your prayer life. Not only is, does it exist, or does it only exist when we want something for ourselves? Matthew 7, 7 asks, And it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to one who knocks it will be opened. He is, remember Jesus is assuming that we are praying kingdom prayers, not self-centered prayers. We know the Lord's Prayer, seeking God's will, but also practical. According to him, the kingdom prayer is also asking God for your daily bread. Asking for us not to be led into temptation. Jesus won't answer a prayer with a yes if it will destroy you or dishonor him. He says no to those prayers. They're saying You're not receiving because you're not even asking. And when you do ask, it's only about you. You see, our prayers are not too big. What we're asking God to do and what we're going to vote on in a little bit is not too big. Oftentimes, our prayers are too selfish. God loves to give good gifts to his children just like you do. Like this quote, there is to be sure no prayer that we all need to pray so much as the prayer that we may love what God commands and desire what he promises. That's a good quote right there. So faith fights friendship with the world and faith must fight for friendship with God. Verse (laughs) 4, he doesn't let up here. James James sometimes used to go, I need a break. He goes right into it in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's two things we have to fight for in the Christian life. We must fight for grace-empowered faithfulness. We are prone, listen, we are prone to be unfaithful. First to God and then with other people. So James is describing this jealousy, this envy, this coveting, this selfish desires as spiritual adultery. He's not getting this out of thin air. Uh, The Old Testament is replete with God saying to his people, you have committed spiritual adultery. It is this idea that worldliness is a flirting. It is a flirting with the world. Instead of going, flirting is harmless, really. You know, I mean, some of us are still young in the room. Some of us aren't. So, you that aren't, pull up at a stoplight. And the person in the car beside of you, maybe five, ten years, your junior, is flirting with you. How does that make you feel? Why do you really put glamour shots on Facebook posts as your Facebook cover page? I'm not judging you by the text. I'm just simply wanting to ask you a question. What is your goal? What is your desire? What is going on in the side of you? And where do you think that's going to lead? You see, here's the truth. 
We know the roots of sin are wrong, and we know the ends of it is destruction, but the temptation is still a problem in our life. Still tempting. He says this is spiritual adultery. It is flirting with things that seek to destroy you. He's getting here what he's wanting you to feel. And if you've never felt it, you really don't have a place for this. But if you've ever experienced adultery, if you've ever experienced that betrayal of a trust so close as a spouse, you know the pain that's involved of it. And he wants you to, the, the imagery is wrapped up in this pain that unfaithfulness to God feels like this spiritual adultery. It is a betrayal of trust. And so, don't miss the simple truth here. Without an act of faith, without a faith that fights, without us praying for this wisdom from God, we will be at the mercy of our most base desires and we will stumble and fall. The point, the corrective point, is that God demands, He deserves, and He desires faithful intimacy from His people. This is relational from beginning to end. To not give God your first and best is to commit the most heinous of sins while we look at the world and judge them. Faith must fight. It must fight for faithfulness. But it fights with or for grace, empowered humility. This is how we fight. The Spirit of God gives us grace. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the, that the Scripture says, He yearns jealousy over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. And, and so the question here, and it's a good question, is what, do we, what does He mean by Spirit there? Some people say it is our Spirit. We are body and spirit. But there's also the spirit that he indwells us with when we're saved. I'm not going to split hairs here because both is true. God has made you and you for himself, body and soul. All of you. He's put together the way you are put together so that you can make much of Him in a unique way that He has designed you to do. But so broken and fallen are we that God, when He redeems you and dwells you with the Spirit, and this is the only reason that faithfulness is possible and our ability to grow through this sanctification, to become more faithful and to begin to desire what He desires becomes greater in our life as we seek to reflect Him and to use our life the way He has made us to live. The Holy Spirit tells us this one theological principle that James is driving at. God is jealous. Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Our God, our Creator, is our husband. He's the Lord of angel armies. And God, that God, that God who created everything, who sustains everything by the word of His power, 
is jealous for your affections, heart and soul. This is not a, a jealousy that afraid you're going to go find somebody better or better looking or younger. It's not that kind of jealousy. There's no one greater than God. This is a secured jealousy that loves and longs for what is best for you and what makes him look good, for he is God. We must fight with humility or for humility. This is the fight. Praise the Lord. Grace comes in here in verse 6. He said, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. In other words, the enemy of faithfulness, the enemy of desire what God desires in our insides so that our outsides begin to act differently. The enemy is arrogance. Arrogance is a wet blanket on your faith. You see, arrogance only trusts for what it can see and what benefits itself. Arrogance seeks relationships for what they can get out of it for them. That's the only thing it seeks. God resists that. And you will not experience grace while you pursue that. You will only experience grace when you put on humility like a robe. And wear it. God's grace is given to the humble. Listen, grace is not some ooey-gooey feeling. It's not ice cream after your meal that your parents get to you. That's just an illustration. Grace is power. Grace is the only way that in this Christian life we can stop spitting in God's face and begin enjoy sitting in His lap. We need grace. We need it desperately. And he says the two antidotes for that is the power of the Holy Spirit and God-centered humility. That's why James keeps talking about tying humility with lowliness, even poverty. Chapter 2, verse 5, he said, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. We stand in desperate need of God's spirit and his grace. And nowhere, nowhere that we see this more clearly with this thing right here. He comes back to it in verse 11 and 12. So I want you to see something before we go to verse 11 and 12. Faith must fight spirit-quenching words. I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit can be quenched and is quenched in our life when these passions go unchecked, when our mouth goes uncontrolled. Ephesians 4, 30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So verse 30 begs us to ask the question, How can I grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, he tells us in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. In other words, what is going to quench the Holy Spirit? 
what is going to throw a wet blanket on your life are these things. But what will spur it on, what will set it on fire, verse 32, is to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The faithful must fight against arrogant and judgmentalism. Verse 11, remember this is inside the body of Christ. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. (laughs) In other words, let's turn this thing to a positive here. Faith presumes the best in each other, not the worst. (laughs) You You want to quench helping people follow Christ. Just look at them and assume the worst. Because the person you met last week was the worst. Quit meeting somebody that you meet, whether they're a Christian or not, and just always assume the worst. But inside the body of Christ, judgmentalism is a sin against God's Word. Do you see it? Because it is God's Word that has told you to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look that up, by the way, in Leviticus 19.18, right there with it, it's saying this. Don't slander your neighbor. Don't slander them. Don't talk evil against them. Don't assume, listen, don't assume that you know what the Holy Spirit is doing in somebody else's life, not even your own children. You don't know. You don't know. There were people that were looked at me at 17 and saying, he's lost as a goose, but they didn't know what the Spirit of God was doing in my life. They didn't know that anger is oftentimes conviction of the Holy Spirit, of us wrestling with God and Him calling us to say, you are mine and you're going to follow me. We don't know that. You don't know it. Only God can penetrate into the heart and soul and judge somebody worthy of heaven or hell. Not us. We are not God. And we are not called to be God. We have a mission. And we have a method. That is our job. To take the great commission and take it in love to all peoples. (laughs) Alistair Begg, I was listening to him the other day. He said this. You are not Jesus the Messiah. You are John the Baptist the messenger. So stop trying to be the Messiah in other people's life. (laughs) That's good. We declare the truth. We speak the truth. We speak it with boldness and in love. But eternity, people's destiny, it's not on us. It's not our responsibility. Judgmentalism is a sin not only against God's word. It is a sin against God's people. It is making a presumption about somebody's life and their character and even their eternal destiny that you don't know. You do not know if God has hardened their heart and turned them over. You don't know that. We don't know, so stop saying it. Stop saying because somebody's a homosexual that God's turned them over. You don't know that. Romans 1 is not given to you so that you can make judgments on people individually. We got a mission and a mandate. And what happens is what we practice inside our family, we bubble over into the world. Only God knows the secret of the heart. Only God says he's going to judge that heart. Absolutely. The Bible tells us God puts fruit on the tree, right? And you can see the fruit. But if I see bad fruit 
on your tree and you see bad fruit on my tree, what's the purpose of me being able to see that fruit? Is it not to get to the root so that we all might produce good fruit? You see the difference between being judgmental and wanting to help people grow? It's driven by love. It's driven by our mission. It's not driven by our pride. So what? I hope you feel it. It's sort of the purpose of the last few weeks. This is everybody's problem. The Christian life, listen, is always fought imperfectly. As much as we want to control our mouth, you know, driving down the road, that you don't always control it. You don't always control it when you're behind the wheel. You don't always control it at the dinner table either. (laughs) It's our problem. Listen, you got a worse problem if you don't think it's a problem. We got a problem that my desires do not always match God's desires. My expectation for my wife or my family is not always what God says it is. It's a problem in our life. It's a frequent problem. So repentance is a normal part of your life, and it is a normal part of mine. That's what verses 7 to 10 is here. And so just as we close, I just want us to see it. How? This is a this is a how-to of biblical repentance. If there is one thing, by the way, that the church should first repent of is its lack of preaching on repentance. Because your life will be perpetually stuck in the spiritual and emotional mud unless you learn how to practice this and practice this regularly. Biblical repentance submits. Notice verse 7. Back to James 4. Verse 7, submit yourself therefore to God. So repentance involves a realization that God's will is best and mine is not. It is a correction to bring my will and my desires under the lordship of Jesus Christ according to his word. It's to submit and to admit that he is right and I am wrong. His will is right. His desires are pure and mine are broken. It is to line my life and my Desires up with him. First, faith, the faithful submit. The faithful also resist. Fighting is necessary in the Christian life. The devil's purpose is to separate you from God and then with God's people. That's why when you begin to struggle with sin, you will always drop out of your small group, get infrequent to church, why are you doing that? Because you, that's part of your sinful nature is to not want to be around godly people when you want to sin. It's also part of the devil who stands beside of all of these things saying, you don't want to go there. My goodness, what are they going to think about you? So let me be clear today. I have good brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement and, and Pentecostalism. I'm not throwing everybody under the bus. I'm not waving some big some big brush. I am simply telling you that all of us have a tendency to minimize our sinfulness. And we do so by becoming infatuated with evil spirits. They're saying, you struggle with lust because there is a demon that's oppressing you. No. You struggle with lust because you are lustful. You get that? There's a difference 
And you cannot be brought to repentance unless you own it. I am lustful, and so I lust. And the devil's standing beside of me going, oh, yeah, you want that. Woo, yeah, that's going to fix it all right there. Even though you've done it 60 times and it's never fixed it, we must resist. The demonic is always there to urge us on in our sinful desires and to shame slap us once we fall. But it's our responsibility to understand that the devil is always close to our temptations and the conflicts. But our sinful nature is the cause of it. And we must repent. We resist him. You grab this, this is connected. We resist him by embracing the truth of God. And by, listen, look at what he says in verse 8. By drawing near to God. You embrace his truth and his promises. His desires and his will is perfect. Not mine. So I'm going to draw near to him. The closer I get to God, the less the demonic is oppressing me. And the more I will see my sinfulness. Draw near to him. This is the basic point of the Christian life, of fighting for faith. It is a fighting for what is keeping me away from God and fighting for what takes me closer to him. The closer I am to him, the more I am able to see my own spiritual adultery and to put it off and to put on faithfulness. This is an intimate picture of drawing near. That there is a progression. Submit to God. Draw near to him. Then wash your hands in your heart. You see it? The end of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Repentance is not. It is not cleaning up in order to draw near. It is to draw near in order to be cleaned up. <laughs> you see that? It, it is to be cleaned up. As a parent cleans up their child that they love. True repentance involves both a change of attitude and a change of action. That's what he means by purify your heart and purify your hands. It first comes with an internal change of your attitude. We saw that with lining our will up with his. This is the beginning of a change of attitude. An attitude that, that says, I need to know what God says. I need to get closer to Him. It is coming to Him to change your perspective on life and to change your actions. The hands and the heart are inseparably connected together. But unless you deal with the heart, your hands will never change. Unless you deal with the root, the fruit will always be the fruit. Here's what's true. And you may not be expecting it. The verse teaches us this though. The more you begin to line up with God's will. And the more you draw near to God. You know what's true? You'll see yourself more clearly. Instead of justifying your sin. You begin to see it everywhere. Oh my goodness. There it came again. You said it going. Man I didn't see that before. The faithful mourn over sin. This is the context of this. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying that we should all walk around here going, oh, I'm a Christian and I'm miserable. I'm holy, though. I'm a holy, miserable person. It's not his point. And you know this is true. What you see on this thing right here is people sinning 
and enjoying it. They're sinning and they think it's funny. And if this is what happens. It comes within the body of Christ. He's saying, don't laugh and don't love what makes God angry. Things that are sin are not funny. They're the things that us men folk, when we get together and start talking about our sin, you know what we always do? We crack jokes. That's our way of deflecting our owning our own responsibility. I've had many a men group, and it's always the case. If I start leaning into life and marriage and intimacy or anything, somebody's going to crack a joke. That's what he's saying. Don't crack a joke. It's not funny. It's not funny to mistreat your wife. It's not funny to work and neglect your family. It's sin, and sin should be mourned over. This is, this is the reality that God gives us when we experience some kind of a loss. There is an internal brokenness that produces an external mourning. And so it is with sin. When we become broken over, over the offense, to our sin is ultimately against God and Him alone. It produces an internal brokenness that comes out as a, ver- a visible expression of grief. But there is a promise. The promise is that the faithful will always be exalted. The promise is those who repent will be not only forgiven, but lifted up. Humble yourself before the Lord. Promise. He will exalt you. What Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to see this, though. Turn with me to Luke, and then we're done. Luke 18. I just want you to see a a story of what is biblical repentance, or maybe we could say biblical prayers, and what is not. In Luke 18, there was two guys. One was very religious and one was a thief. And let's say the religious man and the thief went to church. And here was the spectacle in verse 10. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The other guy. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself be exalted the antidote for the struggles of the Christian life of our continual seeking to follow Christ but falling on our face is this biblical repentance that God says when I forgive you I will never bring your sin up to you or anyone else again you are mine you are precious come here and sit beside me This is God's promise to us in the fight of the Christian life. And so here's my invitation to you as we come to the Lord to bring our worship now. We we celebrate communion every week, so the tables are always set. As often as you 
do this. We do it every week in order to remember Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and promise to come back. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to the table. But if you are not, do not come to the table because you will bring judgment on yourself. This is a time for believers to come. We offer our first and our best. The plates are between tables. But before we do, let us come in repentance. Let us come. Don't say, I'm not worthy to come to the table. Come to Christ. Kneel at the cross. Ask Him to forgive you. Receive His forgiveness. And come to the table. That's the purpose of repentance. It is always to restore. Because that's who God is. And so let us come before Him now in prayer. And then in worship. Lord, now, we have heard from Your Word We have received its truth. We trust its promises because it comes from you who cannot lie. You sacrificed his own son so that we could be in your family and so that we could have hope and so that we could live the way you designed us and intended us to live. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We come to you admitting, Lord, We have failed you more times this week than we even can remember. So, Lord, we pray for forgiveness for those things that are in our mind that we know we have done. We also pray for forgiveness for times that we have failed you. And, Lord, I don't even know it. And so, Lord, thank you because your son lived a perfect life. I can put my faith in him and be justified. Thank you because he went to the cross. He paid for that sin that I did last week and the sin that I will do next week. And Lord, I don't want anything to be between me and you. And no one in this room does. And so, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you restore us? Would you help us understand the promise that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that you surround us with your people to show us how much you love us? And would we come to the tables now? To remember the precious gift of your son. His overwhelming sacrifice for us. And would we also remember that one day we will sit around the table with you face to face. And so Lord until then. Would you receive our worship. Would you fill us with your spirit. Would you give us the grace that we need to be faithful Would you provide for us that which we need as your body to do your work in this place for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.